So this is an interesting time in the life of the church because we're finally going to install deacons, which that's the uh, second office in the church. And I think in order to be a properly functioning New Testament style local church, you have to have both elders and both deacons. Elders come first to provide the spiritual and the theological oversight, and then uh, the deacons come along. And so, and I've wrestled with this for a while because from the outset, I said, you know, we need to hurry up and get this going. We need to hurry up and get deacons so that we can be biblical. You know, I wanted to rush this thing along. Thankfully, Austin, who's a little bit more slowly paced than I am with pretty much everything, um, Thankfully, you know, it kind of it kind of pulled the reins back a little bit. We were able to think, and that gave us time to really consider the office and to consider what the what the role and what the distinctions are between elders and deacons and all those fun things. So, today I told you we would deal with the qualifications, and so that's where we are. So, if you have your Bibles, turn to uh, turn to First Timothy three, and uh, we're also well. This is where your this is your primary context for where we have. The office of uh, the office of of deacon. I told you that it's hard to really say, "Hey, this is the role of a deacon." I told you the word is used, or the form of the word. It's split into three different versions, or you can even say three different cognates, three different endings. And the word is used, uh, always used in the form of a servant. Sometimes the ver- sometime in verb form, sometimes in noun form. But it's like something like ninety-two different times the word is used, and most of those are in the context of a non-office-holding deacon. What makes that difficult is when someone comes to me or when someone comes to you and says, okay, show me in the Bible how I understand the role of a deacon. You can't go to the office-holding context. You can't really go other than qualifications. You can't, it's hard to go to 1 Timothy. It's hard to say, okay, well, here's where they helped widows, or here's where they helped orphans, or here's where they picked up sticks in the neighbor's yard, or here's where they did these things. You just don't find that kind of stuff. Where you do see them serving, where you see practical ministry, it's in a non-office holding context. It's talking about people like you or like me who just might do something to serve the body. You know, so it's, it, gets kind of, it, get kind, it gets kind of difficult. But the good thing is the qualifications themselves, what they do is they help us to zero in on what the actual role of the deacon is. And I'll, and I'll slowly start to unveil that, or at least that's my goal, as we go through all of this. So here's my objective today, right? So here's my objective. We need to really shoot through these things to understand the qualifications of the office of deacon and why the office exists. Why is it required for the New Testament church or for the, for the local church? What, what benefit does it bring to to the local church. So we go to the text, and here's something you've got to understand, or something that I want you to, uh, want you to understand, something that I want you to identify. So we're going to start with verse 1 of chapter 3, and these are the qualifications given to the elders. And just to clear any confusion, Austin and I are, are your elders. I realized in my, in my missional community on Wednesday night, I kept saying, your elders, your elders, you know, and, uh, and David and Amelia, who, who come from a different background and who are learning things, especially Amelia, she, you know, I get a text uh, two days later saying, okay, so who, who exactly are our elders? Have we, have we met them yet? You know, what, well, who are they in relation to, to, to the two of you? I'm like, well, that's who we are. So I took for granted that I used this language, which honestly is not, 
it's not the most common vernacular with in the Bible Belt. You know, we say pastors, which pastor is 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 an elder. Okay, for me, and when I look at the text, pastor is used one time. It's used in Ephesians four, I believe. He gave some as apostles, prophets. He gave some as pastors, teachers. A pastor is synonymous with deacon. As a matter of fact, it might be in First Timothy. I need to research it. But the word is used interchangeably with elder. Pastor is used interchangeably with elder. It can be used interchangeably with bishop. I would wish that you wouldn't call me bishop. That just sounds kind of strange. But if that's just what you want to do, that's fine. Um, I think somebody might take that joke and run with it. But uh, but all right. So so so. We are your elders. We just start planting the church. We wanted to use that term because it is, it, is, it is utilized more in the New Testament than the word pastor. So we're just using those terms. But if you say Pastor Allen or Pastor Austin or there are pastors, you're absolutely right. No harm, no foul, no problem at all. So I wanted to make that clarification. So here we go with the qualifications of the elders, qualifications of the pastors they, the saying is trustworthy, Paul says, when he writes to Timothy, who is a pastor, this book is called a pastoral. It's written to help aid Timothy in his pastorate, help him to understand. He says, this saying is trustworthy, Timothy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, Able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil." Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Okay, so there's your qualifications for the elders. You know, and so when you hear these qualifications, you should be thinking, okay, does, do Alan and Austin, do they meet these qualifications? You know, when I read, this is, you know, I've, I've marked up all of 1 Timothy because I see these things and I see weaknesses in my, in my life, in my ministry, in my, in my pastorate, in my position. I'm like, man, I, I, I need help in this area. I need. I struggle here. You know, uh, manage my own household well. What does that look like? I mean, these are sobering, sobering things. You know, every every time a kid acts out of line, I'm like, am I not managing my household? You know, and so um, and those can be taken to an extreme, an unhealthy extreme. You know, and if we do that, then there's no pastor that's that's qualified. You know, it doesn't mean that your kid can't sin. Guess what? Kid's a sinner. Okay, so but there's a difference in I'm gonna I'm gonna subject myself to the rule of my child versus my child's going to subject himself to my rule, to my authority, to my instruction, to my coaching. So the reason I wanted to read the role of the elders is because they're very similar to the role of the deacons. And what you apply when, when you read, when the, when the qualification is the same, you need to understand that the interpretation is the same. Because for the deacon, it says he must manage his household well. For the deacon, it says husband of one wife. For the deacon, it says, not addicted to much wine, which you could say, not a drunkard. And for the elder, it says all these same things. But you can't walk away and say, well, they're two different offices, so they're two different interpretations. No, what we apply to one, we apply to others. So how you hear me walking through these qualifications, know that I view those qualifications. I, I apply those to the role of elder in the very, very same way. So here we go, starting in verse 8. 
Deacons, likewise, and the likewise is significant because that is exactly what Paul is doing. He's saying, okay, the same things I've said here, I'm going to start applying to the deacons so they're to be received, interpreted the same way. There's the same applications. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience And let them also be tested first, and then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. When you see that they must be tested, that's kind of the same thing when you see the qualifications for the elder when it says that they must not be a new convert. A new convert has to have a season under his belt, you know, before they can can, uh, be a candidate for the role of elder. They have to have a season where they can be tested. It's where you can see whether or not they meet the qualifications. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. I'm sorry, let me back up to 11. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well, For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I have a question. For those of you that have your Bibles open, does anyone have a different word that is used for verse 11 other than wives? Does anyone's translation say, and women likewise, or likewise women? Does anybody's translation read that way? What translation do you have? NIV. Okay. Um, So... I'll get to this later, but just understand that um, in, the, in the original, the, the word there is woman. It is woman. Now, a lot of the translators take liberty based on the context that they see, which I'll go into later, and they put wives as a Greek to English translation. And so just keep that in mind, keep that tucked away, that a lot of the translations you read will say wives, but the original says woman. So we're going to kind of dance around that for a little bit when we get to that because it's pertinent to our discussion. So let's walk through the qualifications. I'm going to bullet point these. This is very much teaching you things. Um, Let me go ahead and say this. We have thought through these things. We have considered these things. We're going to present them to the best of our ability. If someone has heard different teaching on this, we are welcome to you come and saying, hey, consider this too. I've heard this. Just more for us to process, more for us to consider as we're students of the Word of God. But we're, we're going to present to you what we feel uh, is, is what the text is trying to get across. These are our convictions and the way that we understand the Word of God to the best of our ability. So the deacon must first be dignified. So this is going to be simple. I'll give you the phrase or the expectation, the qualification. I'll tell you what it means, okay? Basically that, and then try to tell you how that applies. So just hang with me. We're going to peruse through these very quickly. So someone who's dignified, this is someone who is serious. It's someone who's composed and worthy of respect, someone who is spiritually grounded, this person takes seriously the business of the church. Now, let me say this. This does not mean this person can't be a jokester. Lord knows that I like playing jokes on my neighbor, right? While he was gone somewhere, maybe to the Clemson game, he may or may not have a box full of uh, hissing cockroaches beside his bedside table. I don't know, you know? So I like a joke just as much as anybody else. You know, there may or may not have been a time that I put a trash can on top of his house and it stayed there for a week. You never know. You know, I may or may not have superimposed a lot of my own pictures into his pictures, maybe a graduation from Clemson picture, maybe an engagement photo, maybe a first dance wedding photo where I'm doing this number right here and laughing at them. That may or may not have happened. If it did, good for me, right? Because that's funny, but I like a good joke. Does that mean I'm not dignified? No, some might argue. (laughs) 
This is being recorded. Please keep your comments to yourself. Doesn't mean I'm not dignified. It doesn't mean an elder or overseer or, or a deacon can't have jokes and can't be fun-loving and, 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 just, and, and, and have that kind of, that kind of a way about them. But what it does mean is when it comes to the business that needs to be taking, taken seriously, this person can cut that sobriety on like a switch and say, okay, we need to be focused. We need to, we need to do what needs to be done here. You know, it's, it's, they know how to properly conduct themselves according to the context that they are in. You know, so if I'm, if I'm, there have been times I'm doing whatever I'm doing. I'm having a good time. I'm going and I'm, 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 I'm joking. Maybe we're playing frisbee golf. You know, we're having a good time. We're ripping on each other. Just the guys doing the thing that they do. And we're having a good time and everything's fun loving. And I get a call and it's a hard conversation. It's, it's, you know, it's okay. I realize or a deacon would realize, okay, this is this needs some serious attention. You know, I need I need to sober up in a sense. You know, and 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 really process this stuff through the right filter. You know, because this is what I'm dealing with. So, someone who's dignified is someone who's able to do those types of things. They take seriously the gospel of Jesus. They take seriously their faith. They're serious about sin. Sin is not trivialized to them. It's a big deal. The church is a big deal. Serving the church is a big deal. The health of the church is a big deal to this person, according to this qualification. They're serious about what it is that they've been placed on this earth to do. There's not flipping about their purpose. They're serious about doing the business that God has given them to do. That's the kind of person you want to hold the office of deacon. That's the kind of elder that you want, someone who's always looking ahead and saying, okay, what's going to be best for the body? We need to sober up and consider, okay, if we go this way, it could be dangerous. It could be a bad decision for us. You know, so, so we need to be grounded and serious about things so that we can see what's right and what's wrong so that we can hopefully lead the church in the best possible way or for a deacon and for an elder to serve the church in the best possible way. This person's not likely someone to fly off the handle. This is someone you would feel good in trusting things to, someone you would want with you when you had to walk through some hard decisions or deal with a sensitive or difficult subject. Someone who's serious. Here's proof of their seriousness. And just so you know, this is what Austin and I have, what we've looked for over this stretch of time that we've been considering candidates for, for, for holding the office of deacon. The proof of their seriousness is in their attendance, their commitment to gathering with the body. That's a big deal. In the way that they interact with others, that's a proof of their seriousness. How do they interact with others? How do they respond to things that might be inappropriate? Because that happens sometimes. Somebody does something or says something, and you have one or two ways to go. Whether it's in the church or in the real world, do you accommodate something and say, you know what, I don't want to be confrontational, so I'm just going to let this fly. I might even snicker or laugh a little bit. Or I can say, you know what, that's not appropriate and I'm not going to be a part of that. And you kind of stand against that. You know, so these are the things that we're looking for. And this is evidence of someone who's dignified. Look at the way they interact with truth. Do they come up to the Scriptures and say, you know what, this is a hard pill for me to swallow, but because it's there, I'm going to swallow it. I'm going to choke it down and I'm I'm going to move forward. Or is it someone who says, you know what, this is just too much for me. Or they try to explain it away by doing some kind of weird gymnastics routine with the, with the text. You know, this is someone who's very sober when they come to the text and say, man, this is, this, this is tough for me, but here's what it says. So I'm going to be dignified in the way that I'm receiving Scripture, in the way that I process, in the way that I respond. 
That's proof of someone who's dignified, someone who's serious and spiritually grounded. So that's the first qualification, but there are many more. After this first qualification, he walks through three prohibitions. The first of the three prohibitions is that this person must not be double-tongued. And you've met someone who's double-tongued before. You and I have most likely been double-tongued before. And this is someone who says one thing to someone when they say something completely contrary-wise to someone else. You know, so for example, you know, if I'm having a conversation with someone and someone's upset about someone else and I'm trying to diffuse it, and the problem is maybe I'll cater to them a little bit if I do this, this is not, this is being double-tongued, and maybe I'll say things to make them feel better and maybe say things in a way that might paint these other people in a negative light. I've been guilty of that before. And then I go to this other person and I say something to them and I'm like, okay, okay, I hear you. I'm trying to toe this line, but maybe I'll say things to them. Instead of just being honest and saying, you're wrong or you've got this issue and we need to work on it, you know, maybe I'm guilty of being double-tongued. And so at the end of the day, someone who is double-tongued has a selfish agenda because they don't want to be the bad guy. You know, they want to protect themselves. So being double-tongued is, is, a, is a dangerous scenario. So someone who says one thing to one person and says another to someone else is someone who's duplicitous. You want to be able to come to your deacon or your elder and expect what they say to you to be truth, and it's unwavering. I mean, they're going to speak to you directly, and they're going to say, I agree, I don't agree, this is okay, this is not okay. They're not going to pander to you. They're not going to cater to you. They're going to love you, but a part of loving you is saying, I just need to lay it out there for you because I love you, and this is what you need to hear. And you need to be able to trust that what they give you is not just trying to puff you up or fluff you up, but that they're going to shoot you straight. And that's what you need from your elder, and that's what you need from your deacon. That is something that I also need to work on. The person guilty of this kind of duplicitous behavior is oftentimes trying to guard themselves or trying to make themselves look good. This person is often more concerned with being liked than being helpful to someone else. And that's the issue, right? Sometimes you have to say hard things, and that's what's most helpful, but it's hard to do that. It's hard to say those hard things. It's hard to pick up the phone or to meet with somebody and say, I have this against you, brother. I have this against you, sister. But these things need to be said when they need to be said rather than being duplicitous and saying to them, oh, no, it's okay, you're fine, you're good, and then you go behind their back and say, well, I have this against them. That's duplicitous, and that's against what the qualifications are for, uh, for, for a deacon. So the second prohibition, he says, not only are they to not be double-tongued, but they're not to be addicted to much wine. So let me be clear, this is not a prohibition against the consumption of alcohol. This is not what this text is for. Okay, so there might be some of you that are against alcohol, your teetotals, and some of you that are, I'm okay with alcohol in moderation. The discussion on the table today is not whether or not we can have alcohol. That's not the discussion. We can have that discussion, but that's not what the text is about today. This says that a deacon must not be addicted to much wine. With the elders, it says he must not be a drunkard. So this is not a prohibition against the consumption of alcohol. What this is, however, is a prohibition against addiction to wine. So there's two things that are negative here. There's addiction in and of itself, but then there's addiction to wine. So Paul could have just said, you know what, don't be, don't be addicted. And that would have been plenty. 
Sometimes we think, well, addiction to pornography, yeah, that's bad. Addiction to alcohol, yeah, that's bad. Addiction to drugs, that's bad. What about addiction to gossip? What about addiction to the praises of men? What about addiction to all these different things? And you say, well, what's, what's so terribly wrong about that? The issue with addiction and why in Ephesians 5.18, Paul says, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. He's not given a prohibition against alcohol, sure, against drunkenness, but the, the emphasis of the text there and the emphasis of the text here is that your will and life, your being is submitted and surrendered to God under the direction of the Holy Spirit and not bowing down in subjection to any substance, to anything outside of God that you would bow down to is idolatry. That's why addiction is bad, whether it's sugar. I'm stepping on toes now, primarily my own. Right? Is it a sugar addiction when you go about two days without sugar and you're jittery and you sweat and you feel bad, and then you eat a candy bar, and you feel like God just pumped pounds of dopamine through your brain, and you feel like, ah, you know, chills go down. Has that ever happened to you? Maybe that's the addiction. So, and I'm not treating it lightly. It's a big deal. And I look at it, I'm like, Lord, you're showing me my respectable sins. You're showing me that, hey, oh, I'm not addicted to porn, and I'm not addicted to these things, so I'm good to go. But the Lord says, let me show you something that you might struggle with, sugar you know, um, entertainment, electronics, whatever it is that, 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 grips, that grips you, whatever stronghold has you. He says, don't be addicted, not just addiction, but don't be addicted to wine. The text specifically calls attention to the addiction to wine because addiction is the, volu- the involuntary controlling of the will from an outside source or substance. Addiction to wine takes it to another measure. Addiction is a surrendering of the will to someone outside of oneself or something outside of oneself, but addiction to wine would necessarily mean that not only would there be addiction, but there would be drunkenness most likely to be to accompany that, um, to accompany that addiction. And I don't know if you've ever had a drunk deacon show up at your house, but it makes for a sad scenario all the while an entertaining scenario. I don't know if you've had an elder get up there and he's drunk and he's teaching. It really doesn't make for great teaching. It might be entertaining, but it doesn't make for sound doctrine. So drunkenness, oh, so drunkenness, that's, a, that's the same uh, alarm I have. So I'm thinking, what? where's my phone? So, um, so drunkenness is, is the issue. Keeping in mind that a deacon must be dignified. There must be a level of sobriety to their life to where they're able to process information, approach situations, to know how to best serve, to know how to best assist the elders. And they have to be of sober mind. They have to be ready to go, always on call. The same thing is true of the elders, why they're not to be drunkards. Why? Because they are always on call. Not that when they're off call, it's okay to be a drunkard, but they're saying specifically for elders, specifically for deacons, you need to be ready, you need to be sharp, because you're doing the business of the church. And this is something that Christ takes very seriously. So drunkenness is not acceptable because it's a surrendering of the will to a substance rather than the Holy Spirit, as I share with you from Ephesians 5.18. A leader cannot hold office if they have no control over their use of alcohol. The serious business of the church requires sobriety. The business of the church requires a surrendering to the Spirit of God and not to any other substance. So these are bullet-pointed, just a quick stroke of the brush so you can see what these are. But there's a third prohibition, that is that the deacon must not be greedy for dishonest gain. And you hear the term greedy, and maybe you think, okay, they can't be a lover of money because 
the love of money is what? The root of all kinds of evil. Well, absolutely that's true. But that's true for Antoine. That's, that's true for Bob. That's true for everybody. You know, that no one should be greedy because greedy shows evidence of a deeper issue, of, a, of, a, of an issue of discontentment, of an issue of struggling with the actual sufficiency of Christ and the gospel. But this doesn't say just do not be greedy for gain. It says do not be greedy for dishonest gain. If you're reading through first uh, Titus 1.7, you'll see qualifications for the elders, which are basically the same. And then you come across this statement that says don't be greedy for gain. Well, then Paul changes it up a little bit here, and he says, don't be greedy for dishonest gain. So just like you could be battling addiction, and then it says addiction to wine, just like he adds another element, he adds another element here. And this is the idea of someone that maneuvers their way into a good cause for sordid gain, someone who has ulterior motives. I want to join this great humanitarian movement, but really I don't care about the people that it's supposed to help. I'm in it for the acclaim. I'm in it for the accolades. I'm in it so that they can look at me and say, I'm a good humanitarian. I'm a good philanthropist. I'm, I'm all these things. I really want the spotlight to be on me rather than on the ones that we're helping, on the, on the goodness that's being done. So this is not just speaking of someone with a love for money, but someone who tries to get gain like money, in a dishonest way. Judas Iscariot is a great example of that. If you remember back in the book of John, I believe it's John chapter 12, verses 1 through 6, this interesting, things, this interesting thing happens. This woman, Mary, who had saved up her money and had what you know we know an alabaster jar of perfume, you've heard of this before, or this ointment, which was said to be about a year's wages. So this is a costly bottle that she has. I mean, this is special. This is not something you just, you know, flippantly spray around, right? It's not like Febreze in the couch because your dogs have been on it all day. It's not that. This is something that's very, very, very special. And she's worked hard for it for a long time. And then Jesus comes in. And all she has is this alabaster vial of perfume. And she anoints Jesus with it. And the disciples are there, Judas being one of them right there. And Judas says, what a waste, What a waste. Why couldn't we just use this to feed the poor? You see, what happened is Judas has inserted himself, keeping in mind that Jesus himself says that one of you is a devil. In the Latin, it calls him a maso perdidio, a son of damnation. This is how Judas is described by Jesus, right? So Judas is not someone that was all good and then finally, oh, vessel of wrath turned bad. He was always bad. He always had bad motives. And he says right there, we could have used this to give it to the poor, but later we see the tell of the tape in that Judas, he didn't concern himself with the poor. He had all these other motives. He wanted money. He wanted gain. He wasn't interested in other people. He most certainly wasn't looking after the interests of others. But he was greedy for dishonest gain. And this is not the type of person that you can have in the office of elder and not the type of person that you can have in the office of deacon. Because in both of those offices, there is plenty of opportunity for sordid gain. There's plenty of opportunity to capitalize and to meet your impure motives. So we have to be careful. A man greedy for dishonest gain has several things working against him. First, greed is an addiction of, uh, sorry, an indication of a deeper issue. Greedy people are never content, nor do they find their sufficiency in Jesus. They have another issue going for them. This type of person is a deceiver and serves himself 
rather than the church, which is contrary to the meaning of deacon and the purpose of the office. So those are your three prohibitions. They must not be double-tongued. They must not be greedy for dishonest gain. And they, uh, and, uh, and they must not be addicted to much wine. And so we move from the prohibitions to more of the affirmative. So we'll go back to the text. Here we are. We're reading deacons must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Paul uses this term mystery a good bit. You know, uh, and, and, and it's not that mysterious as to why he uses mystery. It was a mystery then. But in Ephesians 3, I believe, the mystery had been revealed to him, the mystery of the gospel. And so this is essentially what Paul is saying when he says they must hold to the mystery of the faith. They must hold to sound doctrine. They must hold to the gospel. They must have a good understanding of the gospel and what it's done for them, what it's doing for them, and what it will ultimately do for them. These are individuals who understand, believe, and submit themselves to the gospel. These are the ones who hold to the mystery of the faith. The best way to represent Christ and to serve His church is to live in accordance with gospel identity. In order to do so, one has to understand the gospel, have to understand how it gives them new identity, how it shapes their worldview, how it causes them to speak and to move and have being in the world and with other people. So how does this relate to the role of deacon? A deacon is more than just someone performing practical ministries. And here's a qualification that I think points to a deeper role of a deacon. Rather than just take out trash, rather than just clean toilets, rather than just hang a number that's outside that's falling, rather than those things, I think this right here saying, you need, this deacon needs to understand, to articulate, to believe, and to subject himself or maybe herself to the gospel because they're going to be doing work that requires heart-level interaction. And when you enter into a heart-level interaction with someone, you better be able to articulate how the gospel will apply to their situation, how it applies to them, whether they're in Christ or whether they're not in Christ. So I think this is one qualification that points to a deeper meaning as far as the role of deacon here in 1 Timothy 3. Understanding and holding to the gospel truth is necessary in effectively ministering to the heart needs of the church. And I read through a lot of commentaries, and I was honestly quite surprised to find the number of scholars who agreed and said, there's more to the deaconate, to the diaconate, there's more to the office of deacon than just waiting tables, than just cleaning stuff, than just practical ministerial needs. There are many who would argue that maybe they would preach. Maybe they would do teaching. They would do some counseling and things of that nature. And they're saying, based on the language here, based on what it actually means, what the connotation is behind holding to the mystery of the faith, they would make those arguments. And I would agree that it's more than just that. It's not, it's not an authoritative role, but it's a role that shares responsibilities with the elders as the elders as the elders deem fit to send out the deacons, in a sense, to do the work that they need to do. That's best for the church as a whole. So they must hold to the mystery of the faith. Moving forward, Paul continues, and he says, deacons must not only hold to the faith, but they must first be tested. Not a new convert. Must first be tested. See, I used to think differently. I used to think, you know, if a deacon only takes out the trash... Why do they have to be a seasoned believer? Why would you prohibit someone 
from serving that way in the church just because they've just come to Christ. It wasn't that long ago that Antoine came to Christ and he started coming to Haven Ridge and Haven Ridge has been his primary experience with church. Why would I say to Antoine, no, 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 Antoine, you leave that sign right there. You let someone who's a seasoned believer, you let a deacon move that sign because you haven't been a Christian long enough. You haven't been tested. You're a new convert. I think it's because the deacon is doing more than just taking a sign. I think it's because the deacon is more than wiping a window, you know, or, or helping maintain a building. I think they're serving very closely to the elders of the church and helping bring about the vision of the church and whatever that might entail. So deacons must be tested, meaning deacons must first be of a certain caliber before being appointed to the office. That caliber needs to be recognized by the body. As opposed to the practice of appointing someone to office or assigning someone a task in hopes they will rise to the occasion. Because there are some methodological approaches to discipleship or to raising up leaders. There's some that say, you know what, they don't show much hope or they don't show much promise. They really don't act like they're engaged. We really never see them. They're never here. So let's give them responsibility and hope that that'll stem the tide for them. That'll change things. No, that's, that's not how you do that. That's especially not how you do that with, with deacons. You don't say, well, we're going to put them in the position and hopefully they'll rise to the occasion. Hopefully they'll arrive at a place where they can actually meet those qualifications. That's just not the order that the Bible gives us. They must first be attested and be tested and then approved. Just like boot camp is designed first to test the candidates for military service. You don't send someone onto the battlefield without first teaching them how to work an automatic or a semi-automatic weapon. You don't do it. You don't send them out there to fight against, you know, to fight against ISIS if you don't know if they can do one or a hundred push-ups. Can they run two miles in a certain amount of time or are we just good that they can walk? You know, no, there's a testing process. This is normative behavior across the world. And it's not any different for the leadership in the church, for these offices in the church. There has to be a testing period. Who does the testing? The collective church body. Deacons should be tested by the church, observing them in their natural rhythms. The deacon candidates that we'll present to you at the end of this will be, will be deacons that you've been able to watch you know, for as long as they've been here and as long as you've been here. And so that would be the testing period, you reflecting on what you've seen, what you know, based on these qualifications. Is this person dignified? Do I see, have I seen this in their life? There it is. The tail of the tape is stretched out. You just have to, you just have to study it and have to consider it. Who does the testing? The collective body. This is not necessarily in a question and answer format one Sunday afternoon. It's not like when we had Austin ordained, he came here and there's a lot of smart guys sitting in these chairs asking him a lot of crazy ecclesiological, uh, which is the study of the church, and, and Christological type questions, theological questions, just really grilling him one after another. And he did such a great job, you know. Um, and I think, that's, I think that's appropriate. I think that's good. I don't think that's necessary for the office of deacon. I think you can do it if you want to. That's not prescribed in the Bible, but there is a testing period. And maybe there's a certain freedom in how we do the testing, but what we see in the Scriptures is it seems like the church was able to see and able to know the natural rhythms of this person's life so that they could make an informed decision as to whether or not this person meets the qualifications. Deacons should be presented with a history of actions that prove them to be qualified for the office. So they have to be tested first. But not only tested, then Paul goes, they have to be blameless. Sinless? No. Blameless? Yes. This also means above reproach. 
Blamelessness is someone who is striving to be above reproach. Someone who is laboring to not give anyone any kind of reason or excuse to bring any accusation against them. Now, granted, there are times where we do things and we are innocent, but people are going to say what they're going to say. People are going to do what they're going to do. You can't fight it all away. You just can't. But there is the idea that we have to be vigilant, we have to be careful, and consider our culture, consider our context, consider our behavior and how it might be viewed. And just like Paul in 1 Corinthians 9 said, you know what, this meat sacrificed to idols, there's nothing wrong with it, nothing wrong with it in the world, but I will, I will refrain from doing that because of the way they'll perceive it. So he says, I won't do it. Why? Because he wants to be above reproach. And the whole idea of being above reproach is so that it's not a hindrance or a stumbling block for the gospel. That's why a deacon and that's why an elder has to be above reproach. That's why they have to be blameless. Let me give you some examples. Above reproach would look like this. Let's say you do not have an issue with alcohol in moderation. I know we've already visited this, but it applies really well. But you refuse to partake around those who have issue with it. You have friends that are teetotalers. You have family that are teetotalers. And your view of this is different. You say, you know what? In moderation, or you can go to the Bible and say, this is, this is okay. But they're not having it. So your decision is, you know what? That's okay. I will, I, will, I will not be a stumbling block. I will choose to be above reproach in this situation and not give any cause or not give any reason for someone to bring any kind of accusation, even though it's based on maybe a faulty view. But nonetheless, it's an effort to say, you know what, it's not, it's not worth it. And this especially applies to those who are holding office. What about trying to guard yourself from being alone with the opposite sex? It's not always, it's not always easy Sometimes I go and I drop, uh, I drop my, my daughter off or my son off at a friend's house, and maybe it's just the mother that's home. So I'm like, hey, here's the instructions. I, I try not to take much time. Hey, thanks, just call me, or I'll call you if something happens, shut the door, run away kind of a thing, right? Just try to be careful. You know, there are times where Joey might be downstairs, and I go over, and I have to get something from there, borrow an egg, borrow sugar. I don't know what it is, steal something, you know, take pictures so I can superimpose myself. I go in there, maybe Natalie's upstairs. Natalie can tell you, I'm not in there for, for hours having conversations. I mean, Joey's downstairs, but he's still out of the room. So I'm like, okay, be careful so that there's no reason that anybody can bring any kind of accusation against me. So I'm just being very, very careful. I think that's what this means to be blameless. This would be someone who is cautious of their interactions with the opposite sex so that no one can accuse them of being flirtatious or having impure motives at all. John Piper has been said, I don't know if this is true now, so if John Piper is listening to this, because I'm sure he, he subscribes, used to, he, he, if he does now, fine, but I know that he used to, if he saw a woman walking in the pouring down rain, he would just pass right by because he was not going to have another woman alone in his vehicle just to be safe. He, he is said to go into hotels. I don't think this is true. I think it's embellished, but destroy TVs so that there's no temptation. I could see Piper, you know, he's about 110 pounds soaking wet, you know, five foot two probably, you know, going in there and slamming TVs around. I don't think so, but I think he, um, I think he, I know he does things so that there's not even a temptation to cut on the TV and see something bad. He's just trying to be above reproach. That's the idea behind being blameless, and that's why it matters. Because in the office of deacon, the service that you're going to be providing the service that you're going to be meeting, the, the needs that you'll be meeting, you know, 
you need to represent Jesus the best that you can, represent the church the best that you can, and give no one any kind of reason to say, you know what, I don't really trust them. I know they want to meet needs. I know they're here to help me, and they want to love me in the right way, but I know this about them, or I saw this. We don't want to give anybody any reason to bring any kind of accusation. So blameless. So now we get through two fun ones, and I'm just going to read through it, and here it is. So deacons must be tested, then the deacons... Uh, let them serve and let them be blameless. And it says their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. So there's two possible interpretations, or actually there's three possible interpretations here. One interpretation is that woman or women refers to all women in the church. So scrap wives, and one interpretation is that it's saying all women in the church must be. Now there's a lot of conjecture that you have to assume or you have to apply in order to agree with that because there's really nothing to support that in the text. So I heard that and I wrote it down because I heard it, but it's not, it's not legit, so, or I don't think it is. So let's just say, okay, we can move on. This is unlikely that it's referring to all the women because look at the context. It's setting an office aside. It's not creating a third office. You know, uh, Even if there are women deacons, that's the office of deacon. It's not there's an office of men, then there's an office of women, and they have completely different qualifications. That's not what it's going for. Another view is that these women are the assistants to the deacons. could be that the wives are assistants to the deacons. It could be that women are assistants to the deacons. And I don't find great argument for that as well. As a matter of fact, I didn't find any real argument for that. I just found that somebody said, hey, this is one view. This is one view. It could be like someone like Dennis who comes up and says, I haven't done any study, but here's what I think it is. Well, we write it down because that's a view. It's crazy and maybe nonsensical, but it's a view. So then there's a third view, which wives refers to the wives of the deacons. This is a popular view. This is a popular view. And here's some possible arguments for that interpretation. Paul has used language in a previous chapter in, in 1 Timothy 2 when he talks about how women should conduct themselves in the church. And he says women must do what? They must not teach or exercise authority over a man. And so there are those that would say based on that, and they're, try, and they're trying to use proper hermeneutics, and I'm not faulting them at all. There might be absolutely something to that, but they're going and they're saying, see this context? I'm just projecting this text onto this. This is hermeneutics, how Scripture is used to interpret Scripture. So yeah, I think it's a viable argument. They're saying, see, Paul's saying that. It just carries over. The problem is the office of deacon is not an office that is neither authoritative or is it an office set apart for teaching or for instructing. So to use 1 Timothy 2 for women in their teaching or authoritative role, it doesn't apply. So I have a struggle with that. Another possible argument is that women are told to learn in quietness and submission. Well, the context of that, where Paul says that, you have to keep in mind, in Rome, there was something, well, basically it was a massive feminist movement, and women were usurping their husbands. And so Paul is saying, don't be like that. I don't think he's saying, hey, you can never speak. I don't think he's being that chauvinistic. I don't think he's being that uh, hierarchical. He's saying, listen, don't be like these women. There's a historical context there. You know, 
honor your husbands. Honor Jesus in honoring your husbands who can be jerks. But honor them. And when you honor them, you honor Jesus. So you honor Jesus in honoring your husband. So don't rise up against your husband. Don't try to dominate or domineer your husband is I think what he's getting at with the heart of that. So I don't think that applies to a woman who wants to hold office and serve the church and to love people in that way in a position that is neither authoritative or a teaching role. So there are... So that's my response to those arguments. And here's my struggle. Here's my struggle with the wives of deacons. And Austin and I talked, and I told Austin, I said, I will not, I will not, if, if, this, if we're not in agreement, if we're not both leaning on the same side, I'll just say, hey, we are still struggling through this. It is complex, and we are going to continue to wrestle through this probably for the rest of our lives as we as students of the Word and go with that. And that is still true, but so you know, Austin and I are unified. We're unified in where we're landing on this while fully admitting that, we're, that we're, we're continuing to study, continuing to learn, continuing to consider things, because we are by far uh, God's gift to uh, brilliance or academics or scholarship. So, um, so my struggle with the Wives of Deacons translation, with the qualification between elders and deacons being so similar, why do the elder qualifications never make mention of their wives? Why does Paul not say to the elders... Your wives must also not be slanderers, not be given to gossip, not be malicious. If the office of deacon is, is, is addressed and saying, hey, wives, we got to say this because this is a big deal. How much more should it be addressed for the wives of elders? But it's not addressed, neither in Titus or in 1 Timothy 3. So for me, that gives me pause. It gives me pause because the fact that it's omitted, I think, tells me something. And that's, that's my conviction. If it matters that deacons have wives meeting certain character assessments, would that not also be mandatory for the wives of the elders? Women are only prohibited from, having teaching, men, from, from, from teaching men and exercising authority over men in the church. Therefore, why would the office of deacon, if it's not an overseeing or teaching office, why would it not be open to them? Which I guess has kind of paved the way to let you know kind of where my view is. There's a fourth view. And this is where I'm leaning. Women refer to female deacons. And this should not come as a surprise to most of you that were here a year and a half ago, two years ago. We talked about this, and I said, this is kind of where I'm camping out. Maybe I'm a little more firmly rooted. There's still questions that I have. There's still some things I'm like, I need this explained. You know, we're not moving forward with any female deacons. If any of you are about to have a conniption, chill out. Um, you know, but we're still working through all of this. So why I lean towards this interpretation is because the most natural reading of the text is women, women must be. Women likewise. The male deacons must be this. Female deacons, you must be this. You're holding the office too. These things apply to you likewise because likewise is how they started this text when it started with the men. Likewise, pointing back to the elders. It's all connected. It's not a third office. It's two offices. And it's the most natural reading to say women. The office is an office of service and not oversight. The office protects the elders. That's a part of it. They assist and protect the elders. It doesn't assume the role of elder because it would be a horse of a different color at that time. So I want to be clear to draw that line of distinction. Well, then it moves on. We, got a, we, we just got these last two to go. And then it moves forward and it says not only are, uh, uh, the, I think, women 
must likewise be these things. But it also says the husband must be a husband of one wife. A husband of one wife. This is probably the most heavy hitting for me. And I'll say the same thing about it that I said about, I said about the, the, the role of deacon, uh, S. Deacon, that's, not a, that's, a, that's our term. That's not a Bible term, but the role of a, of a potential female deacon. So husband of one wife. Here's some possible interpretations, and I'll move quickly. And this argument probably won't be as sufficient as you would like it to be, but if you want to continue having that conversation, I am absolutely open to do so. Would love to learn, would love to teach, whatever. Possible interpretations. It refers to the deacon's relationship to the church. Now, that's crazy conjecture. I don't think that's a, a wide view at all. But someone out there says this is, this is speaking towards how the deacon should have so great affections for the church. It just, it's, it's that, like almost like Jesus himself and his love for the church. Like you should be that. that that's, that's, I don't believe that's what it's saying, but it is of you. Second, second possible interpretation is that it is in reference to polygamy. You know, deacon must be a husband of one wife. Elder must be a husband of one wife. Can't have a whole bunch of wives at one time, which is what polygamy is. Polygamy was a reality then, keeping in mind that you had, it wasn't a huge deal. That's the majority of scholarship says it wasn't really a huge deal, but they're not saying it wasn't a deal at all. Keep in mind, a lot of these brand new Christians came from paganistic backgrounds, and some of those paganistic backgrounds were polygamous. So there was a learning curve there. So it could be that he's saying, okay, you, you can't be married to, but, but only one wife at a time. You can't have a bunch of them. I don't, I'm not going to really entertain that one. Another interpretation is it refers to man being married only once. Not, not once at a time, but once, period. That's probably, I don't know if it's the most popular, but it's on par with the most popular, if it's not the most popular, is that it refers to a man being married only one time. Now, if you draw that line in the sand, you might have to go the way of, well, you know, if he gets divorced for any reason, any reason in the world, you know, he can't, you know, uh, well, well, maybe they would say he could be, I have to search, uh, research that a little bit more, uh, maybe they could say he could be divorced, but as long as he's not remarried, because he still has only had one wife. Now, there's a lot of nuances to consider when you're thinking of these. It's not just so black and white that you read through it and say, okay, it's this or this. There's a lot of variables to consider, and I'll share with those, I'll share a few of those with you in just a moment. The fourth view is that it refers more to the character of the man as opposed to his marital status. Now, here's what I want to share with you. I want to share with you the actual translation of husband of one wife. The actual translation literally reads, one woman man. A one woman man. Keeping in mind that when you read the qualifications for the elder and you read the qualifications for the deacon, they are largely character assessments dignified as a character issue. Not being double-tongued is a character issue. The prohibitions are a character issue. Because you can have someone that, that, that is married or not or whatever, but they might have a poor character, a low character. They might fall way on the bottom rung when it comes to some kind of character assessment. So there's the view that says, this is more concerned with the character and the quality of the man. What kind of moral standing does he have? What kind of person is this? What kind of man or what kind of woman is this? But the actual translation is a one-woman man. And the translation is what has catapulted us into the way that we're understanding this text. 
So here's my problem with some of these views. The first view, it's conjecture at best to consider interpretation number one, and that is that it's the deacon's relationship to the church that's being mentioned. My second view, second view, I think, well, I told you, well, I've already told you about the polygamy thing. The third view, if the text means that a deacon or elder must only be married once, what does that mean in relationship to the exception clause of Matthew's gospel? And here's what I'll Here's how I want to explain what I'm saying so it's not too convoluted. If, if that's the view that's right, then maybe it would mean that he could be divorced. He just cannot be remarried. Because if we're holding to that view, his second marriage, whether or not it's justifiable, would be a second marriage. Or you have to say, well, you have to consider this understood, this 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 kind of just a, a, an implied understanding that's beneath the text. And that is that, well, because the Bible says that there's exceptions given for divorce here, and not everybody agrees with that. But let's say Matthew 5 is an actual exception clause. In the case of unfaithfulness, in the case of adultery, someone is freed to give their spouse a writ of divorcement. They can do that. Let's say that that's actually what Jesus meant. According to this view, man, they have to only be married once. They're free. There's no penalty. That's the idea behind the exception clause is you're divorcing for reasons that I've allowed. You're not the adulterer. You're faithful. You've stayed the course, but he or she did not. And you may have fought for your marriage and you may have continued, but they wanted nothing to do with it. So at some point it's out of your hands. You stayed the course, but at some point they pulled the trigger. And there's no penalty for you because you were not the one who wanted to divorce because you wanted to move to greener pastures. You were not the one who committed the adultery. You were not the one who abandoned men according to, uh, abandoned her or him according to some views. So, so you're given a pass. You are free to divorce. But with this third view, it says, but you're not, if you get remarried, free to hold the office of deacon. Because remarriage is allowed under certain circumstances, and it's not allowed under other circumstances. If someone commits adultery on someone else, the Bible says straight up, it is a sin. It is committing adultery to remarry. I think that's Mark chapter 10. And so it's a strong, it's a strong thing. So this third view presents some problems for me if I'm just trying to make sense of the text. If I'm just trying to consider, not just, I, I'm, I'm looking at, at 1 Timothy and I'm trying to draw some understanding based on other texts. I think that's hermeneutics. I think that's the proper way to try and understand Scripture. And to a degree, it's difficult. But here's why the fourth view holds the most weight for us right now. For these reasons, this qualification reads the most smoothly by keeping it in the category of character assessments. So I'm not reading, let deacons each be the husband of one wife, or I'm not reading it as, I'm, re I'm reading it as let um, uh, be a one woman man. I'm reading that as the, the focus, the emphasis behind the writing is to say, we're highlighting the character of this individual. Because there's a quality and a character of a man. Not so much his position, not so much his status. Because does it diminish the character and the quality of a man if a man is left behind? Or does it diminish the character and quality of a woman if her husband says, forget you, I'm gone, I'm moving to greener pastures? 
What if that man or that woman were wholly and solely committed to their spouse? I had a friend, I have a friend, that his wife decided, I'm done, I'm gone. And he was pastoring, or he is pastoring, but he was pastoring at the time as well. And he came to his wife, and she wanted nothing more to do with him. It was out of the blue. And unless he just lied to me, he was faithful, and he fought for her, he pursued her. And I've heard this story many times through friends, unfortunately, over the years. But there was a time that he showed up at a gas station where she was pumping gas. The divorce had not gone through, but she was adamant about doing it. And he gets on his hands and his knees, and he begs her in front of everybody to stay. Please, what have I done? What have I done? Oh, it's nothing. She just got bored with it. She just got bored with it and said, I'm moving on. And so what does that mean for him? He's free to be divorced because there was adultery. There was that if that is how we understand the exception clause, if that is the proper understanding of of the beginning of Matthew's gospel. So he's free from penalty, but he can't serve as an elder. He can't serve as a deacon because the husband of one wife, if it's interpreted as that, he can't do it. So he does, in the end, receive a penalty when the whole exception is there so that you don't receive penalty. And so there's some things that we are we are thinking through here, trying to understand, because what you apply to one, you have to apply to the other, because it's the same language. One woman, man, on both sides. I think this rendering here, this fourth view, I think it seems to make sense. The mo- it makes the most sense of the allowance for divorce in the Gospel of Matthew. So, if it's... If it's one wife at a time, this may be a question that comes up. You know, if someone says, well, okay, yeah, it's one wife at a time. Here's the issue, because I think this is more of a character assessment than a a positional assessment. I think the answer is, because that's that's it. Okay, so a person can remarry and be elders. Okay, whatever. A person can remarry and be be deacons. If you're going to hold that view, okay. So where do you draw the line, Alan? Do they just keep getting married over and over again? Do you ever say, well, enough is enough? Keep in mind, if this man is dignified, or if this woman is dignified, if this woman is meeting all these qualifications, if this woman is a one-man-woman, one or if he is a one-woman-man, if that is their character, do we really think that we're going to see someone that's going to hop from marriage to marriage to marriage? Probably not. There might be a case that that happens But rather than dealing in a lot of hypotheticals, let's just deal with what's in front of us and say, when this situation comes up, we'll assess this situation. And so the deacon must be the husband of one wife or a one-woman man. And I believe that applies the other way. I think if it's a woman who can hold the office, she must be a one-man woman because I believe that these are character assessments more than they are positional assessments. And Paul ends with this. He said, a man must manage his household well, meaning one who keeps order, who is engaged, involved, and governs his family for their good. It doesn't mean you, you have to be married. It doesn't mean you have to be a family. Keeping in mind that culture. A lot of families, that's just the thing to do. And so they had families. And someone who does have a family must manage their household well. Someone who is married must be a one-woman man or a one-man woman. Some may, some may lean to the male-exclusive you know, office of deacon because this verse says that deacons must manage their household and their children well, implying men. 
And the very beginning of that verse says, men must be husbands of one wives. But of course, it's going to be in the masculine because the same is true today that it was in the first century. The God designed the family structure so that men would be the head, so that men would lead. So of course, Paul's going to address them because it wasn't the woman's role to manage the household. It wasn't the woman's role. It was the man's role. And if a man, be it the deacon or the elder, couldn't manage his home, how is he going to manage the body of Christ? Because it is management. And that is another reason that I think the elders or the deacons do more than just take out trash or signs or clean windows or toilets. I think they're given managerial responsibility. And you don't just want anybody who's anybody doing that. Because you want it done in the right way for the glory of God in a way that's going to best meet the vision of the church and is going to best represent Christ.